everyone. This is Dave Forfaro. For a reminder, we are the Palm Peeps. We're people who love pulmonary. We love vents. We love peep. We love people who have lungs and people who take care of pulmonary patients, basically everybody. We're here with our pulmonary podcast, whose mission is to provide a platform for learners of all levels to engage with pulmonary and critical care education that you can access anywhere, anytime. I'm here with my co-hosts, Monty and Ansa. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hey Dave, it's Christina. So yeah, great to be with you and Ansa today. Doing great. And as you said, we love um, a lot of things pulmonary related. And just remind, as a reminder, stay um, as you learn and hear about this episode, make sure you check us out on our Twitter account and you'll be seeing some infographics that highlight some of the concepts we're talking about. Ansa, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Hi everyone, this is Ansa. I'm so excited to be bringing you our first episode. Great. And just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case Ansa is about to present is HIPAA compliant, and some details may have changed to protect the privacy of our patient. Awesome. Uh, Why don't we dive in? Ansa, why don't you tell us about this patient? Sure thing. So today we're going to be talking about Miss A. She's a 66-year-old African-American female. She is never a smoker, has a past medical history of asthma, who was referred to the pulmonary clinic by her primary care doctor after having multiple recent episodes of dyspnea, wheezing, and coughing. These were diagnosed as asthma exacerbation. She's been treated with steroids, and also some of them were felt to be triggered by current respiratory infections, and she was given antibiotics. She's been having worsening cough in the context of these repeated episodes. She has some shortness of breath during the episodes, but in between this essentially resolves. However, she does note that over time, she feels her exercise tolerance is decreasing. Her medications include Dolera, which is an inhaled corticosteroids called mimetasone, and a long-acting beta agonist, or call from Introl. And she's also using albuterol inhaler as needed. Her past medical history includes triple negative, poorly differentiated breast cancer of the right breast, and she's status post neoadjuvant chemotherapy and radiation, and she's in remission now. She's a never smoker, no occupational exposure. She lives in New York. She's a former model, um, no family history of lung disease, and she does not have any pets. Well, wow, so that sounds like an appropriate referral to pulmonary for sure. So a bunch of things pop out immediately, so I'd love to get some further information about her recent history. Ansa, could you tell us more about these recent exacerbations and infections? So over the past about two years, she's had multiple presentations to her doctor with shortness of breath and wheezing. She has a chronic cough that is worse during these episodes, and she has had episodes when the cough is more productive of a yellow and sometimes green sputum. She is not needed to be admitted to the hospital for any of these, luckily, but the symptoms have been progressively worsening. During two, uh, two of these episodes, she had some opacities and consolidations on her chest x-ray, and she has been managed with several rounds of antibiotics, recently as if and augmentin that seemed to have minimal impact. Um, she did have one documented episode of MSSA pneumonia that improved with directed therapy. She's been treated with intermittent prednisone papers, and she finds the most relief from those. Wow. Sounds like she's definitely dealing with a lot. You mentioned this history of asthma that you had, and some of these symptoms she's talking about could definitely be consistent with asthma exacerbations, a response to steroids, intermittent symptoms, although there are a couple unusual things too, like the opacities on her chest x-ray and the MSSA pneumonia. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of asthma that she has? Yeah, definitely a great point. 
Um, so she carries a diagnosis of asthma for 10 years. And up until recently, it was well controlled. She was on asthma next, which is mimetasone and inhaled corticosteroids with minimal exacerbation for many years. In the setting of her recurrent presentation, this was escalated to Delera, like I mentioned earlier, and the dose was increased to two inhalations twice daily. Despite this, she has daily PRN albuterol use with frequent nighttime symptoms, and she notices that she can't walk as far as she used to be able to. For example, she previously was able to push a baby carriage around, but now she has difficulty doing this for a few blocks. Also, what you've given us so far has been a great summary and gives us really a lot to work with. You know, one of the first things I like to do when patients like this are referred to me is go over their prior testing and make sure my underlying assumptions are correct. In this case, I definitely want to go over how her asthma was diagnosed. Uh, I know, Ansa, you've looked into this a little bit, but can you tell us more about what you found? So definitely. I think having background about the diagnosis and epidemiology of asthma is really helpful here because it allows us to highlight some atypical features about this case. So asthma usually readily recognized in younger patients and characterized by airway hyperresponsiveness and variable respiratory symptoms such as intermittent cough, wheeze, chest tightness, and dyspnea. Symptoms are routinely brought on by a classic trigger and associated with airway inflammation. Those triggers can include allergens or irritants, exercise, and some patients or viral infection. Asthma usually is diagnosed before the age of seven years in approximately 75% of cases. Most children will go into remission around puberty, but some will have recurrence later on in their life. The prevalence of asthma in adult age over the age of 65, such as our patients, only about 4 to 8%. Spirometry provides essentially all the information for diagnosis, and we would expect a variable expiratory airflow limitation or reversible airway pattern on spirometry obtained at least once. You bring up a bunch of great points, Ansa. You know, asthma in older adults like this is definitely possible. And this patient carried a diagnosis of asthma, but it's unusual that she was really stable for a long time and then now symptoms are getting much worse. So thinking about those triggers or thinking about a change in her underlying asthma is certainly uh, something we should delve into. And you mentioned the spirometry is absolutely key. And, you know, I think Monty and I can agree. So many patients come to me with a diagnosis of asthma, and then when you look at their PFDs, there's really nothing there that it was based on. It was just sort of based clinically. Uh, So I think it's worth delving in a little further. Uh, Do we have her initial spirometry? We actually do. Let's take a minute to review her PFDs, actually. So for her spirometry, her FEV1 lower limit of normal is 2.16, and FBC lower limit of normal is 3.01. Her FEV1 was 1.74 liters, which is 58% of predicted, and her FEC was 2.8 liters, or 74% of predicted. This is pre-bronchodilator. And this makes her FEV1 to FEC ratio of 62%. It looks like she definitely has obstruction on her spirometry. Definitely agree, Ansa. Yeah, and I think you going back to her FEV1 to FEC ratio of 62% is lower than the lower limit of normal for her, um, which was 69%. So let's take a minute to talk about how you interpret obstruction on spirometry. So according to the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD criteria, airflow limitation or obstruction is characterized by an FEV1 to FEC ratio of less than 0.70 or 70%. The severity of airflow obstruction is graded based on the degree of reduction in the FEV1. 
So one thing I look at when I'm looking at spirometry is look at the ratio. Do they have obstruction? Yes or no. And then the next thing I go to is what is their FEV1? And then you can actually grade um, mild, moderate, severe um, based on what the obstruction um, and FEV1 is. However, more recently, ATS guidelines have talked about speaking about obstruction in terms of relative values. So a firm cutoff of 70% may be too high for some people and too low for others. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm often asked like whether this cutoff changes with age. How do you approach this? It's a great question. It's a, I'm glad Monty brought it up that we can talk about it a little bit more. You know, we know that FEV1 declines with age at a normal rate and it declines at a faster rate if you have something like COPD or smoking history. Uh, we also know that the normal ratio of FEV1 to FEC declines with age as well. So these factors all need to be considered when you're trying to come up with what would be expected normal for patients to have a cutoff. And this is all goes back to things we learned in med school, sensitivity and specificity, and trying to have a, a good test uh, that gives us a real diagnosis. So some experts argue that airflow limitation should be defined as an FEV1 to FEVC ratio below the lower limit of normal. So you kept giving us those values, which is extremely helpful. The way that that lower limit of normal is established is by looking at the normal distribution of similar patients and making a cutoff somewhere that you think identifies obstruction. And ATS and ERS societies have said that lower than fifth percentile or lower of that uh, ratio in a normal distribution for that patients of that age, height, uh, and sometimes including ethnicity and other factors would uh, indicate obstruction for that patient. I think the next key point and thing to consider with asthma is reversible airway obstruction. Anza, when you interpret serology, do you have any system or criteria you look at uh, when deciding if a patient has airflow reversibility with bronchodilators? Yeah, definitely. I think I know this one. So acute reversibility, you know, is tested by administrating two to four puffs of a short acting beta agonist such as opioid The criteria I use to confirm bronchodilator reversibility is an increase in FEV1 or FEC of 12% or more, accompanied by an absolute increase in FEV1 or FEC by at least 200 ml. Yes, Sante, I agree. That's exactly what we look for. It's also worth mentioning that I always advise my patients to hold short-acting beta agonists, such as albuterol, at least four hours prior to PFTs to get an accurate response. So does she have some post-bronchodilator spirometry? Um, she does actually. So her FEV1 was 2.2 liters, 74% predicted, and her FEC was 3 liters, which is 80% post bronchodilator. Her FEV1 and FEC ratio is now 73%, which is above the lower limit of normal for her, which is 69%. With bronchodilator, she seems to have improvement on her FEV1 of 480 ml, which is about 27%, and improvement in her. FEC of 230 ml, which is about 8%. She definitely needs criteria for reversibility based on um, what I said earlier. Her obstruction is completely gone after the bronchodilators too. Okay, so it sounds like we have a reversible airway obstruction firmly established at this point. Monty, how are you framing the case so far? Yeah, so putting things together so far, we have a woman in her 60s with a past medical history of asthma and reversible airway obstruction proven by pulmonary function testing, who previously had well-controlled disease on an inhaled corticosteroid alone, who has had multiple episodes of asthma exacerbations and possibly pneumonia as well, and progressive baseline symptoms. I love that summary. So based on that, she was referred to a pulmonologist. Based on her frequency of 
Obinrol used her daily symptoms and her exercise limitation, she's diagnosed with severe persistent asthma. She switched to high-dose Advair from Delira. This is still an inhaled corticosteroid and LABA, but the dose of steroid is increased. Additionally, Spiriva, a long-acting muscarinic agonist, was added as well. Christina, what do you think about the escalation in her so that's a great question. And kind of a, just upon first assessment and prior to escalation of therapy, you know, I've always been taught to assess a couple of things um, before saying that we need to escalate therapy. So number one, um, you know, is asthma the correct underlying diagnosis? Two, you know, whether the patient is actually using proper inhaler technique. And three, assess for underlying triggers or exposures that may, the patient may have. So once I assess these topics, I determine if there is still a need to escalate therapy. Regarding our patient, Mrs. A, based on the frequency and severity of her symptoms, plus how often she is using her albuterol inhaler, you know, I would say that she has moderate to severe persistent symptoms. You know, inhaled corticosteroids are the first line approach for treatment of asthma, along with the long acting beta agonist. Her symptoms could certainly be optimized and are consistent with step four therapy bridging to step five, with the addition of the long-acting muscarinic agent. So teotropion is the only long-acting muscarinic agent approved for asthma. Notably, this is not recommended for monotherapy. You know, I don't think it would be unreasonable to consider a short course of oral corticosteroids at this juncture either. If you want more on step-up therapy, just let us know and check out our images online. Monte, I love the inhaler uh, technique point as well. I've had so many patients. I, I don't know that I could do inhaler technique great, you know, with a, a with inhaler each time because it's hard to do. And I've had so many patients do, you know, just different things. I had one person who would do it, but he forgot to take the cap off every time. And so he's just uh, no meds going in whatsoever before I escalated anything. I was glad we could figure it out. So this is great. She did not actually get any oral corticosteroids, um, to your point, Christina. And the next contact she had was a month later, and she had no improvement in her symptoms at all. I believe at this point, she falls into the category of difficult to treat asthma. And so that's unfortunate that she didn't have any relief, and you're absolutely right. She is starting to approach a subset of difficult to treat asthma, labeled severe, that typically only accounts for 3 to 10% of the asthma population. Severe asthmas refer to asthma that remains uncontrolled despite treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids combined with the long-acting beta agonists, glucotriene modifiers, or systemic glucocorticoids for greater than 50% of the previous year to prevent it from becoming uncontrolled, you know, or which remains uncontrolled despite this therapy. So it's important to note that uncontrolled asthma is commonly referred to at least one of the following. So number one is um, poor symptom control based on symptom scores. Number two could be frequent exacerbations. Uh, so two or more rounds of steroids in the prior year. Three could be exacerbations requiring hospitalization, ICU admission, or mechanical ventilation in the prior year. Or four, um, airflow limitation. So we know that she's had many courses of oral steroids, but would have to go through in more detail to see how often. In these cases, I go back to the three points I raised earlier. Is the diagnosis correct, or are there any contributing diagnoses that may be missed? And then if not, about triggers or drivers of the disease and adding a biologic agent for treatment of refractory disease. Yeah, Monty mentioned this twice now, and I think it's because it's such an extremely important idea. Uh, she mentioned making sure that the underlying diagnosis is correct, and we've started to do that by looking at the PFTs. 
but also exploring underlying triggers. This includes, I think, getting a better phenotype into the asthma. For example, there's a primary allergic phenotype that we often see. Um, and it, while it's not unheard of, it's pretty unusual for asthma to worsen later in life. Uh, so this could be around other changes going on in the patient's life. A new allergic exposure could definitely explain that. Like if we found out that you just got a cat and then this is happening, then certainly that could be some contribution as well. However, given the escalation of treatment, further workup is certainly warranted at this time. So she did not get a new cat. So what type of additional tests would you do at this time then, Dave, in addition to stepping up for therapy? I feel bad for her that she didn't get a new cat. I love my cat. Maybe it would help her. Uh, okay. So I, you know, I think, like I said, I always look for markers of an allergic phenotype. And this is really important for determining criteria for biologic therapy, as Monty mentioned. So these include serum absolute eosinophil count, making sure to collect it while they're off systemic steroids, which can lower that count, and IgE levels. This is going to also sometimes include specific allergy testing to see if there are markers to specific exposures in the patient's life that they could try to avoid to make their symptoms better. If there is an eosinophilia that you see, I sometimes consider testing for other diagnoses that can contribute to this. Things like eGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or strongyloides. I don't always get that depending on the case. You know, in this case, because there's a little bit of unusual features, I probably would think about it. But if it's just a young patient with asthma who has it elevated, sometimes you don't have to do the more in-depth testing. At this point, I think I'd also want to make sure there are no structural abnormalities or evidence of parenchymal lung disease that can make me suspicious for etiologies beyond just airway disease. You know, she had some episodes of maybe pneumonia and antibiotics and consolidations, so I think this would be warranted. I'd at least get a chest x-ray and then consider a CT scan based on the results of that. And then finally, in a 66-year-old, other common diseases need to be considered that could be contributing uh, outside of the lungs. So things, doing a focused history and physical exam, maybe even uh, imaging of the heart like an echo, if there was any indication that this was actually not a primary lung problem. Thanks so much, Dave. She had some of these tests, so let's take a look at the labs first. So she had a CBC with a differential, which was the normal limit, limit with 1% eosinophils. And her absolute eosinophil count was 140 on this check, which is normal. In the past, her absolute eosinophil count was as high as 550 and as low as zero, possibly um, having been on steroids at that check. Her IgE is, however, elevated to over 1,500. She also has some um, autoimmune workup that was sent, including ANA that was negative, and she also had the extractable nuclear antibody panel that was negative. She has rheumatoid factor and CCP that were also negative, and Inca antibodies for vasculitis. Those labs are really super helpful, Ansa, um, especially the IgE that's really jumping out at me. So she has markedly elevated IgE level and a mildly elevated absolute eosinophil count that has been very elevated in the past. If nothing else is found uh, with workup, she at minimum has allergic phenotype of asthma, and based on these values would be eligible for multiple biologic agents used to improve asthma symptoms. You know, Dave mentioned this briefly before, but given her unusual progression of symptoms, it is also worth investigating some other causes for these findings. You know, so other causes to think of could be an Anca vasculitis, namely eGPA as uh, Dave mentioned earlier, but she's had negative testing. While this does not 100% rule this out, it greatly decreases the likelihood. Another etiology to consider is definitely ABPA, 
are allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis in patients who have underlying asthma or cystic fibrosis. Ansa, do you know, does she have any imaging? So her CT scan showed that she had lower lobe predominant central lobar nodules between blood opacities and moderate to severe peribronchial thickening with the right upper lobe consolidation and bronchiectasis. There's also mild bronchiectasis in the bilateral lower lobe. To me, this was a bit surprising. Christina, how do you typically describe bronchiectasis when you see it on a CT scan? And what features does a radiologist look for? So great question, Ansa. I usually refer to bronchiectasis as an irreversible dilation of the airway or bronchi. Some common findings that have been taught throughout training include um, four different things that I look at, look for on radiographic images, uh, specifically CAT scans. So number one, are the bronchi greater than 1.5 times as wide as an adjacent blood vessel? Two, is there lack of tapering of the airway near the periphery? Three, are there varicose constrictions? Or four, um, any ballooning of cystic structures? Hey, Monte, I've always had a little bit of trouble with varicose constrictions. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're kind of looking for for those? Sure. At least the way that I've kind of seen things or kind of was taught is, you know, you could have an airway that is initially enlarged, but then starts to kind of taper um, again near the end. So radiographically, I also look to see what the distribution pattern is and look for two different kind of categories, um, focal and diffuse. So one is a bronchiectasis, more of a focal process, just involving a segment or lobe of a lung. Or two, is it a diffuse process involving both lungs? Which if it is, then I look to see, are the upper lobes or lower lobes, are they more predominantly affected? Because that can help with differentials. And I also look at the surrounding lung parenchyma to see if there are any associated findings, such as underlying interstitial changes or evidence of fibrosis. You may not always see this on CAT scan, but thickening of bronchial walls and mucus plugs can also be seen. Do these findings of uh, bronchiectasis on her CT change your thinking about the case? I think it makes the differential a little bit more interesting. Hey, what diagnosis do you think of with bronchiectasis seen on imaging? Yeah, absolutely, Ansa. You can think of several large categories when you're thinking of causes of bronchiectasis that you've seen on imaging. And most of them are all associated with underlying infections or inflammation. So first is post-infectious or inflammatory conditions. The second would be congenital conditions that lead to recurrent infections. And most commonly, this would be cystic fibrosis or other diseases like primary ciliary dyskinesia could do it as well. That brings you to the third, which is sort of a general, any general immunodeficiency syndromes that lead to recurrent infections can cause bronchiectasis. Uh, and there are definitely some common ones we think about, like hypogamma globulinemia. For chronic aspiration, someone who just has lower lobe aspirates and recurrent infections there can lead to localized bronchiectasis there. And finally, rheumatologic conditions or connective tissue disorders can be associated with bronchiectasis as well. Monty mentioned looking at the distribution, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, It's never firm because diseases don't always read the textbook, but there are some sort of common patterns that you see. For example, central bronchiectasis is more common in AVPA that we mentioned earlier, or HIV. Upper lobe predominance, cystic fibrosis, which can eventually be diffusely in the lung, usually initially often have upper lobe. Uh, Sarcoidosis, which can sometimes cause bronchiectasis, is also in the upper lobes as well. In the middle lobes, things like MAC are often the prominent etiology. 
And the lower lobes, we mentioned aspiration, but other things like alpha-1 antitrypsin, hypogammaglobulinemia, uh, primary ciliary dyskinesia can also do that as well. Uh, and then finally, you know, radiation therapy can lead to bronchiectasis in really sort of a focal pattern wherever the radiation was uh, delivered. In terms of this case, the bronchiectasis is important because it could be the trigger for her recurrent flares. And it would also help sort of explain this mixture of asthma episodes and opacities that could be pneumonia. Monty mentioned allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis earlier, which can definitely be a cause of worsening asthma that can present with severe asthma symptoms and bronchiectasis on imaging. Yeah, um, I was actually definitely thinking about that as well. The recurrent infiltrates and bronchiectasis make me think that this isn't just asthma alone. She clearly has some recurrent inflammation or infection, possibly in her lungs, to the point where she's having chronic airway dilatation. But she also has pulmonary function tests and symptoms <laughs> consistent with reversible obstruction. From a diagnostic standpoint, it seems like looking for conditions with this type of overlap could be the key to her case. Monty, how would you summarize the case to this point, and what would you do next? So building on our last problem presentation, I would now say that this is a 66-year-old woman with previously well-controlled PFT-confirmed asthma who's now presenting with progressive symptoms and exacerbations in the setting of an elevated IgE level, elevated absolute eosinophil count, and imaging revealing bronchiectasis and recurrent migratory infiltrates. So I'm really thinking about a few things now. Assuming the ANCA negativity makes EGPA less likely, the patient could have ABPA, a recurrent or chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, or it could be, but less likely given her exposure, a Loeffler syndrome due to a parasite infection. I think some further testing is definitely warranted, and I'm also worried about the infiltrates like you and Ferf mentioned. So I'd want to get a bronchoscopy to make sure there is no chronic infectious etiology contributing. So our patient did get scheduled for, for some blood work and our bronchoscopy. Some other interval history is that she had an echo with an ejection fraction of 55% and mild impaired LV relaxation, but normal atria, her right ventricle, and pulmonary pressures were normal. Um, she also received a course of antibiotics from an urgent care and had another CT of her chest before the bronchoscopy that showed a new left lower lobe infiltrate. She had a precipitating serum antibody levels against Aspergillus 10 that were positive for IgG against Aspergillus fumigatus 1 and 6. She also had a bronchoscopy with BAL that showed copious bilateral secretion with friable airways. Her bacterial and fungal cultures were negative, however. Notably, there were minimal eosinophils on cell count that was sent. I typically think of the presence of eosinophilia and sputum to be a feature of asthma, and prior studies have shown this could be associated with disease severity, specifically uh, developing acute exacerbations. However, it's important to note that medications such as inhaled corticosteroids could reduce the eosinophils in the sputum, uh, and additionally, acute infection, like she may have had getting the antibiotics, reduced that as well. So I don't think that her having the decreased eosinophils on the BAL is all that helpful. I will say it does make etiology sort of like chronic eosinophilic pneumonia less likely as they're sort of defined by an elevated eosinophil count on BAL. You guys, the big deal of all of this is her aspergillus testing. ABPA is a diagnosis made by establishing sensitization to aspergillus antigens when the symptoms and imaging are consistent. And this patient definitely meets these criteria. 
She has a predisposing condition of asthma. Her IgE level is greater than 1,000, and she has specific elevated aspergillus fumigatus antibodies. Her elevated absolute eosinophil count in the past is consistent with this as well. At this point, I definitely feel comfortable calling this patient having ABPA. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that's. I think we have an answer. I mean, additional testing can be done. You know, serum specific IgE against afumigatus or skin testing. But like Monty said, she meets criteria already. So I think that's it. So what is generally the treatment for ABPA? Yeah, so treatment is really a two-pronged approach uh, with steroids and antifungals. And the most common antifungals are itraconazole or boriconazole. There is some debate here. There are no definitive randomized control trials like there are for some other diseases to tell us exactly what we should be using. But those are the two main components. Some people try steroids alone for the initial course, and then they only add antifungals if the steroids can't be tapered while others kind of just go for the combo therapy right away. And different societies recommend different things. I think that the Infectious Disease Society of America recommends using the antifungals right away, and some experts kind of go the other way. For me, I think a lot of that decision comes about the disease severity and also about the patient's ability to tolerate the different treatments. You know, for example, if they have heart disease or diabetes, I may not want to start steroids alone without the antifungal if there's a chance they're going to have to be on it longer. may just go for the full treatment uh, so I can be a little more confident in tapering them. The steroid course is usually a half a mg per kg up to a mg per kg with sort of a max of 60 milligrams daily. Uh, And that's for about two weeks and then start tapering slowly after that. Some people go to every other day dosing. Sometimes you just decrease the dose. It's a little bit of a a pick your poison and how you want to do it. This is usually followed by a really slow taper of steroids over three to four months. And if antifungals are used in the beginning, the usual course is about 16 weeks and then completed for that. And it's one really important thing is to monitor LFTs for hepatotoxicity when the patient is on itraconazole or boriconazole. And they can also have quite a bit of drug interaction. So important to look at what the patient's on. Awesome. So our patient was actually started on prednisone and boriconazole with monitoring of her LFTs. Monty, what do you look for to monitor treatment efficacy? Well, I would say the most important thing is how is the patient doing and feeling? You know, and that being said, steroids can often make people feel subjectively better. So it's important to have objective findings to monitor as well. So in these patients, I like to look for resolution of consolidation non-imaging. So in this case, a chest x-ray is generally fine for that, uh, but eventually would like to get another CAT scan of her chest to monitor um, her bronchiectasis. And I also trend her serum IgE levels. So the absolute eosinophil count should fall right away while on steroids, but the IgE is a better long-term measure. So I like to see it drop by at least 35% in the first month, And then I usually consider remission if the patient has been tapered off steroids and imaging and IgE are normal without exacerbations for six months. So Ms. A initially rapidly improved in terms of her symptoms and her infiltrate resolved on her chest x-ray as well. However, she had trouble taking off of steroids and every time they would go down on it, her symptoms would recur. I looked into this a little bit and it seems like there are some more novel therapies that are being used for refractory ABPA as well. Feel free to jump in at any time, but one um, treatment option specifically that I looked at was omalizumab. Thanks, Ansa. That's extremely helpful. So as more agents are coming out for severe allergic and eosinophilic asthma, these agents are being tried in steroid-dependent ABPA as well. 
So mepolizumab, um, which recognizes and blocks interleukin-5, has been described in some case series for patients just like this to help in weaning off steroids. That's exactly what happened here also. The patient was transitioned um, to mepolizumab with excellent improvement in her symptom control and her exercise tolerance. Woohoo! Ah, I'm glad the patient's doing well. And we come to our first uh, diagnosis on Palm Thieves. I love it. So in summary, we had a case of a woman in her 60s with previously well-controlled asthma that was confirmed by reversible airway obstruction on PFDs, who developed worsening daily symptoms and had recurrent exacerbations. She was found to have elevated IgE, absolute eosinophil flow count, and imaging with recurrent infiltrates and bronchiectasis. Ultimately, she was diagnosed with ABPA, and while she failed initial therapy with steroids and antifungals, she is now well-controlled on a monoclonal antibody therapy. My favorite learning point from this case is that newer guidelines favor interpreting pulmonary function tests based on population-specific normal values and not just with hard guidelines. Specifically, that it is important to compare values to lower limit of normal, which is less than or equal to the fifth percentile for a value in that population. Yes, I agree. We had a great time today um, with this case. And I would say my learning point um, that I am taking away from this case are what are two main things that we look for for evaluation of ABPA on laboratories um, evaluation. And number one, looking for a total IgE level greater than 1,000. And number two is the presence of aspergillus-specific IgEs. Yeah, that's great. And I love personally Monty's review of what to look for on imaging for bronchiectasis, namely bronchi that are 1.5 times as wide as an adjacent blood vessel, lack of tapering airways near the periphery of the lungs, varicose constrictions with Montes described very well as a dilation and then a narrowing later on, and then ballooning of cystic structures. And then also to then look at the distribution pattern and see if it's focal or diffuse or isolated to certain portions of the lung to help you narrow your differential down. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed and will subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to also check us out on our Twitter account at Palm Peeps and our website, palmpeeps.com.